Coming up on this episode, author Jillian St. Kevron joins us to talk about the Christmas installment in her gothic romance series. Welcome to episode 271 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Will, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Mr. Jeff Adams. Hello, everybody. Welcome back, Rainbow Romance readers. We are so glad you could join us for another week, another episode. It's been a while since Jeff and I have sat down in front of the mics and talked to you specifically. We'll see if I can remember how to talk. (laughs) I've been worried about the same thing. Earlier in November, we batched recorded a bunch of episodes so that we could keep the content flowing directly into your earbuds. But we have not been lollygagging. We have been very, very busy. First off, we had a very chill Thanksgiving, spending it completely by ourselves, which, frankly, is how we prefer it. Indeed it is. No matter how you chose to celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S., we hope you had a good, safe, and healthy time. But in the midst of everything else that has been going on in the world, Jeff and I chose to move. Crazy, right? (laughs) Because why would you necessarily choose to move in the middle of everything? We know there are other people who've chosen to move in a pandemic. I don't know that we necessarily thought we would do that, but the opportunity arose and we grabbed it. Yes, we spent the last week and a half settling into our new two-story home. This is the first time I've ever personally lived in a house with stairs. One thing is for sure, my glutes are going to be rock hard in the new year. (laughs) It's my second time to live with stairs, but I basically haven't done it in the past 25 years, so I am much older now than I did it last time, and you kind of plan when you go up the stairs, (laughs) but it's been good to move. It's a much quieter neighborhood, much better surroundings, and our podcast studio is all set up so we can keep bringing you all new content in the new year. So we're going to spend the rest of the holidays settling in, arranging books, putting up Christmas decor. You know, we've, when we've moved before on the show, we have talked about the number of books. And I will put in the show notes a link to a Facebook post where I showed our big pile of books. So that you can go, wow, those guys have a lot of books if you were so inclined. We could have built a fort. Let's just put it that way. And speaking of books, this would be the perfect time to tell you that Jeff and I have a box set available. Yes, we do. We have boxed up The Hockey Player's Heart that we co-wrote, along with my other two standalone hockey books, Keeping Kyle and Head in the Game. And all of those are inside the Hockey Hearts box set. Now, this is on sale for 99 cents. Yes, you heard it right. You can get three full-length novels for 99 cents. This is on sale through Wednesday, December 2nd in both the U.S. and the U.K. on Amazon. So if you are looking for three reads that are Good for your pocketbook. You can pick those up right now on Amazon. And of course, that box set's also available on Kindle Unlimited, so you can also just read it to your heart's content. And of course, Hockey Hearts might also make the perfect gift for somebody on your wish list. You could certainly gift that book to somebody while it's on sale for 99 cents. But if you're looking for more gifts, we want to point you towards Libro.fm. Now, you know we are a big fan of what Libro.fm does because it's a place you can buy audiobooks and at the same time support a local bookstore. They have several gift packages that they've put together, which is perfect for the audiobook lover on your list, or frankly, a gift for yourself if you're an audiobook fan. When you buy these packages that they've done, you're actually helping out a local bookstore even more than with a regular Libro.fm audiobook purchase. Now, these packages are only available through the end of the year, and you can get all the details on the assortment that is available at biggayfictionpodcast.com slash audiogift. 
That is biggayfictionpodcast.com slash audio gift for all those details. Yeah, this is a really great bargain. I know I will definitely be checking out the available titles. We might just be gifting each other. I think, yeah, most definitely. <laughs> now, recently I got to speak with Jillian St. Cavern. We have both fallen head over heels for her gothic romances and featured The Mystery of Brackenwell Hall during October as our book club selection. It was so wonderful to get to sit down with her, really dig in to this wonderful gothic world that she has built in her series, and also get to talk about some of her other series, too. She writes about werewolves and magic and some Christmas ridiculousness all at the same time. And of course, she's also now set a Christmas book inside of her gothic series, too. So we had a ton to talk about. So let's get to it. Jillian, welcome back to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you here so we can do a more in-depth discussion now. I've really been looking forward to this. I really enjoyed chatting with you and Will before. So yeah, it's great to be back. And as I think most people know, we loved Mystery of Brackenwell Hall, which was the book club selection for October. And it's part of your Read by Candlelight series. And you've got a Christmas story getting ready to come out, which is super exciting. But let's back up for folks who may not have heard about Brackenwell and the series overall. Tell us about Read by Candlelight. So this is a series of gothic novellas and they are gothic romance in the academic sense. There is all of the tried and true gothic tropes. There are big houses with deserted corridors and hidden rooms. There are lots and lots of unreliable narrators. There are things that aren't what they seem. There are ghosts. There are, oh, there's everything really. But the series was completely unplanned. Actually, at the time I write, wrote it, I was working on an urban fantasy series that I've been trying to, I decided I needed to be a more mainstream author. So I researched my tropes, put a lot of effort into writing this book, got it all the way into the second version of the first draft of the first book, and then discovered I needed to do some heavy revision of it. And I was just exhausted. I decided to take a break from writing and we were moving house at the time. I found a book of gothic romances that I'd bought as a teenager and never read. Read them all in one night. Went to a house sit. I was in this really isolated corner of the New Zealand countryside. I was on the coast. I could not see another house without like walking down the road for a half hour. It was just me and the dog. Occasionally, I would hear other people's vehicles as they went down the road. But yeah, I was completely alone pretty much for 10 days. And then the first night, I think that I was out there by myself, I had this dream. And the dream was pretty much the plot for The Secretary and the Ghost. As a teenager, I'd been big into gothic romance. I loved Dracula, although it took me a couple of tries to get into it. I loved Camilla, and I loved the ghost stories of, is it Emma James? And I think that the gothic romances just were sitting there in my psyche and just waiting for a good opportunity to come out. And I decided, what the hell? I'll just see where this goes. And I wrote all 30,000 words of the secretary and the ghost in six days, which, wow. yeah, that's 
never happened to me before. It never happened since. But this was a story that my subconscious really wanted to tell. And as soon as I let that out, other stories came bubbling up. Brackenwell Hall, I'd been very, very sick for a long time in Japan. And I'd been feeling quite isolated there because in addition to when you're unwell, it kind of puts a barrier between you and other people. But I had the language barrier on top of that. And my family who were in New Zealand at the time were like, you're perfectly healthy. What are you on about? And so I wasn't quite getting the family support either. And so that had probably been sitting there in my soul sort of for a very, very long time. And once you sort of start delving into these things, more things came sort of bubbling out, which is what makes the series so interesting because it's completely unplanned. And because of this, the stories appear not in chronological order. It's whatever is speaking to me strongest at the time that I sit down to write. So quite often I've thought, okay, I'm going to write this story next, but then something happens and a different story takes its place. So for example, the fourth story in the series is a haunted bedchamber and it's another, it looks like a ghost story, but it's got a New Zealand protagonist, a Maori protagonist called Waremu. And that story had actually been sitting at the back of my mind for a very long time. But I'd always said, I'm not ready to write this. I don't know enough about Maori culture. I'll make a mistake. I need to do more research. And then the Christchurch terror attacks happened. And I sort of sat down and looked at my writing and was like, every single character in Read by Candlelight up till now has been white or European. And this is kind of bad. So I kind of turned to Wirimu and was like, I'm not ready, but it's time. And he was like, it's about time. And writing The Haunted Bedchamber was actually, it was tough, but it felt right. And The Vampire's Relic, which was my first lesbian romance, I was so scared to write it because I'd only recently sort of told my friends and family I'd only recently come out. And so it was kind of like coming out to readers. And again, it just, writing it felt incredible. So the Read by Candlelight series, every single book is different. The Well-Dressed Werewolf has kind of a Wodehouse flavor, but it's a murder mystery rather than any kind of romance. There is a romantic element, but it's got a very different tone. And then The Art of Drowning, Sarah, who beta read it for me, that's Sarah Trevor, she described it as a twist romance. So it's different again. What does a twist uh, romance mean? That's a term I'm not familiar with. Well, I, neither was I. Going into the, into the Art of Drowning, Francis, who is the narrator, he thinks he knows who he's supposed to end up with. He's got his eye on someone that someone is completely unsuitable for him, that someone is not at all human and does not want to be involved with the human world. So it's kind of, it was never going to happen. But while the story goes on, there is somebody else who is a friend to him 
but it's not until the end of the story that Francis realizes that person's feelings are not are romantic rather than friendly and that they actually they have potential for something. The person who was sort of framed as the love interest was actually not the love interest. But yeah, the series just gives me so much so much opportunity to kind of play with gothic tropes, to play with different monsters, to play with different elements and genres, all within the same overarching world. And I hope that it gives readers the ability to jump around and, you know, try things and skip the things that they don't want to read or that might not appeal to them. Because they very much seem all standalone too. So you can hop around as you please. I really wanted them to be standalone. There is a connecting thread as Pip and Cross and later Julian's relationship. Their kind of family bond continues throughout the series. But very few of them, you'd need to read another book before reading them. There are two that I would say don't read as your first book, and that's The Weeping Statue, because it goes very, very heavily into Patrick's head and his inner demons. And I think you should meet his inner demons beforehand. <laughs> and then the Lord and the Banshee, I kill off a major character. And I really do not want that book to be anyone's first introduction to me because I do not make a habit of that, I promise. Because <laughs> you said they don't necessarily go chronological, but then you've got things that happen where this major character is killed off in what would be book 13 yep. of the series. How do you keep your timelines together as you go if you are writing out of order? I had a notebook in which I'd sort of carefully charted everyone's ages, what year the books took place in, kind of what technology was available at that point, and then I lost the notebook. Oh, no. <laughs> And so I've been trying to recreate it and sort of look back at the early books and we're like, okay, I've given a date here and, and sort of build from there. The mystery of Brackenwell Hall, because of certain plot elements, has actually been very helpful to me in rebuilding my timeline. I can imagine that actually, yes. Let's talk Christmas. Uh, you've got a, a nice gothic tale for us with the Christmas party. What, we, yep. what have we got to look forward to there? Well, I think it was the turning of the screw. The, there is a tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. And I think oh. it was used as a framing device for the turning of the screw. And it also shows up in a couple of Emma James ghost stories and other Victorian ghost story writers. And I've wanted to do something with that for a long time. And there is a character in the series. I've known about her. I've known she was coming for a long time. Pip's niece and Julian's cousin, Pippa, who has her uncle's sort of enthusiasm for everything supernatural, but she's also an indulged heiress. So she is totally spoiled and used to getting whatever she wants. What she wants is a... Christmas party that will be remembered forever so she's decided she's going to forget telling ghost stories around the fire she's going to have a Christmas party on Christmas Eve in a real haunted house and you don't do that and not expect consequences 
It is asking for trouble, in my opinion. Yep. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I've just been really enjoying it because Pippa is just, she is pure fun to write. And Mika, who is, he's kind of the caretaker of the house. He is her opposite in every way. Pippa is a hopeless optimist. He's a confirmed pessimist. He's also a ghost, which he is trying to keep Pippa from working out because once she realizes, he's going to get no end of bothered. But that's the other half of the story. I wanted to write a read by candlelight story from the ghost perspective. Oh, that's really cool. How does that change the game for you in, in taking on a ghost POV from an actual person? It's actually been surprisingly hard because part of what makes the Read by Candlelight series so the gothic part so fun is because there's the element of unknown. Like it's always a little bit uncertain and you're never quite sure what's really going on. So when you've got a ghost narrator, you kind of lose that element of uncertainty. So one of the challenges for me is kind of been introducing that back. And we've also got the fact that Mika is, he's very hopeless. Like some people, I think if they became a ghost, they would be like, this is fantastic. I'm going to do all the things. Mika has just tried to be as invisible as possible. So he's not really aware of his own potential and that scares him a bit. So part of his journey is kind of accepting his position and coming to terms with that. Interesting. Can't wait to read this. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. I hope so. Because that's actually what I think the, the key to the Read by Candlelight series is. It's just been pure fun I don't try not to think too deeply about it just go with kind of what feels right or what scares me I'm trying to tap into my subconscious as much as possible and just not let me get in the way of the writing and just see what happens because that way it's kind of it's fun for me too because I never quite know what's going to happen next what has to go into one of these stories and, and not necessarily from like a true planning point of view, but at least as you're getting the book together from draft to final to like get the feel of the gothicness and get all the historical elements pieced in there. Usually I start one of these stories with like a really strong character or place or idea that I want to explore. Once that's sort of firmed down that I have like a few ideas for things then I start doing a bit of wider reading for the dead letter office which um, revolves around a department of of a post office I actually hit a gold mine on project Gutenberg so this is an online digital library I guess where out of copyright books are scanned and transcribed by volunteers. So you've got things there, like you've got pretty much the works of Dickens, you've got everything by Bram Stoker, you've got all of the Emma James ghost stories, which I thoroughly recommend. And you've got things like Mrs. Beaton's 
book of household management, which is incredible. There is a recipe for how to make a sponge cake that includes the instructions. Send your maid out to stand in a cold corner of the garden with a whisk and beat for 30 minutes. So, yeah. Those really give you a window into life at that time. So for the dead letter office, I found the postmaster's manual for the Canadian post office service at about the same time period that I was writing. So that told you, you know, pretty much what was expected of each clerk and how they had to do their reports and stuff. There was also an amazing book called 10 Years Among the Letter Bags, which was at the account of an... American special agent who was in charge of investigating postal fraud, which is actually very timely right now. Indeed, yes. (laughs) Yeah, so Project Gutenberg and reading like primary sources is, is a big thing for me, but I just try to read widely around a topic as well. I wanted to ask you too, you mentioned getting to employ the the unreliable narrator in these gothic yep. stories. Yep. What caution do you end up taking with that to ensure that it doesn't completely annoy the reader when you're using that device? I'm sure I totally annoy some readers with it. Um, <laughs> I am a sucker for the unreliable narrator. I was an English lit major and it's ruined me for life. I tend to write sort of close third or first person. So I'm closely following one person and I don't think, well, you know, every, everybody has their own kind of blinkers on. We all have our own sort of preconceived notions and stuff. So no one is a reliable narrator. And I just really enjoy the scope that gives me for misunderstandings and to build that uncertainty where the characters know that they don't know, but they don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. My narrators unreliable because their perceptions are not reliable. They're never deliberately dishonest. I think that would annoy me. Mm-hmm. And my characters, their prejudices are usually very obvious to the reader. I think my long-term readers know now to kind of take my narrators with a grain of salt. You've been working on Red by Candlelight almost exclusively since March of 2019, and Christmas Party is the 14th book. How long do you think this series continues? Do you know, book 10 was supposed to be the last book. (laughs) (laughs) I had a beautiful little narrative arc, and it was going to tie everything up tidily, and then more books kept on coming along. So I've got a last book that will finish the series, but I want it to not just be the last book. I want it to be the last published book. So chronologically and actual published date last. So I've written a chapter of it and then I'm sitting on it, but yeah, the ideas keep coming. From the Christmas party, there is the character in it who makes a very bad decision. So there's going to be another book to deal with his bad decision. <laughs> so eventually you'll get to the last book, but indetermined when that may happen. Yes. Which is yeah. nice because it just means the fun gets to continue. Because this is, there- this is such a fun 
series, just the way that it's written. I loved how Brackenwell like just kept dodging in all kinds of extremely interesting and unexpected direction. Yep. And what I love is that as we get further on in the series, Stephen and Charlie are starting to make appearances in their later careers. So in The Collector, Charlie is attending one of Julian's friends as his doctor. And then he's like, oh, you're having a seance? Can I come? So he, he kind of wrangles himself into the story. And Meriwether is tends Cross in Cross's final illness. So... Yeah. Oh, fascinating. It's been, it, it's so cool seeing how all these different stories interwining in ways that I did not plan and did not see coming. I think it's an example that proves, you know, that pantsing can really work well. Yeah. yeah. I was like an overplotter up until this series. So it's, it's really challenged me to let go of a lot of my assumptions, though I still need a plot when I write. I just like having that kind of structure, though my plot kind of gets revised three or four times as I go along because the story keeps changing on me. Let's talk about the past a little bit. Before you were doing Gothic, you were doing a series called Thorns and Fangs. Tell us all about that. I'm going to jump back a little bit before then. In 2009, I decided I was going to write original fiction. And before then, I've been heavily involved in fan fiction and online role-playing games where you kind of, you wrote and acted as if you were the character you were playing, which was a ton of fun. But I was like, I want to, I want to do something more. And so I wrote my first original novel the vampire and the accountant and it was a lot of fun but I got some well-deserved feedback on that story and was like oh no <laughs> this is too hard I can't deal with this and gave up for a few years and then I came back to writing and I, I decided that I was not going to write sex I was not going to write character death and I was not going to write anything with violence in it I was just like I can't do fight scenes they're too hard and my writing stalled I struggled with writer's block and just a complete lack of ideas or motivation for years and years and then I thought what if I wrote a story that had all of those things in it and instantly the writer's block turned off and I had so many ideas and Thorns and Fangs was just this big sort of outpouring of energy and ideas from 2009 to 2013 when I sat down. It was my NaNoWriMo project. I hit 50,000, maybe 60,000 words in November, carried on writing for the first week of December. I was still in Japan at that point. So Christmas lessons kind of took over my entire life for the rest of the month. And then I finished it in January. And then I was like, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> but it's, as you may have guessed from the fangs in the title, this is a vampire story. But the main, what makes it more interesting is that it is a human 
pursuing a vampire as a love interest. So the protagonists of Thorns and Fangs, Nate and Ben, both have their own sort of baggage and emotional hurdles to overcome. It's a four book series and they do not get the happy ever after until the end of book four. And I make them work really hard for it. But Nate is somebody who believes in his emotions. He's very intuitive. He kind of goes with the flow and does what's right. And he's got a hedonistic streak and he's just all about what feels good in the moment and not really thinking long term or caring too much about the consequences of his actions. Ben was turned and became a vampire after an attack that claimed the life of his father. He was saved, his father wasn't, and he's got a lot of guilt about that. But he also believes that having emotions opens you up to kind of losing control to those emotions and making poor decisions and putting people at risk. So they're complete opposites, but they have this immediate connection. And so they've kind of, they really make each other stronger, but they also, before they could come together, they both had to address their own issues and kind of work on building themselves up. So there was a point where it was actually healthier for them to be apart than be together, which is something that I hadn't seen explored much in romance. So it actually turned out to be a lot of fun. It is a big mess genre-wise. It's got horror elements. It's got erotica elements, paranormal romance, urban fantasy kind of. Yeah, it is... It's very different to other things that I've written, but then I think everything I write is different from everything else that I write. And these are massive books. They're about 120,000 words each. They are very twisty plots. Yeah, very fun to write, but exhausting. (laughs) You need a month to recover afterwards. And then you've got this other series, Deep Magic. Yeah, Deep Magic is lots of fun. Again, this one was sort of pure accident. I signed up for the, I think it was the 2015 Don't Read in the Closet event on Goodreads. And the the prompt I got was from a German reader who wanted a story set in Wales with an Australian protagonist who is returning back to Wales after a long absence and is in search of the prince he remembers from his childhood. That's an amazing prompt. It was so good. This is terrible. But at the time that prompt went live for people to claim, I was scheduled to teach an English class. So I was up in the English class. I was teaching I kept my eye on the the clock and as it got closer and closer to the hour, I turned to my co-teacher and said, oh, I've left something on my desk. Can I go and get it? And he was like, yep, that's fine. So I went down to the staff room. (laughs) I had the page loaded on my computer. I just said, put in my password, click go and went back up to carry on the lesson. And it wasn't until the lesson was finished and I came down to my desk in my break period that I saw my claim had been successful and I got the story. That's awesome. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do to get those things when you want them. Yep. But yeah, so Deep Magic, at the time 
I voted, I was living in Japan, so I could relate very strongly to the kind of homesickness and nostalgia for wanting to be somewhere else. And I, I had a great time researching it. I did a deep dive into Welsh mythology, and I also spent a lot of time hanging out on Google Maps, just learning the town Aberdaran. But that's kind of the writer story of Deep Magic. For the readers out there, Ollie is, he's inherited his grand's house. So he's returned to Wales after an absence of, I think, seven years to kind of revisit the house that was um, the center of his holidays as a child and kind of make peace with his past. And he and his mum suffer from something called the longing, which is this feeling that there's some place they need to be, and it's always sort of driving them onwards. They're never able to settle in a place or in a relationship because they always have to keep moving. It's bittersweet because Ollie is really glad to be back in Wales, but he knows that, you know, the longing is going to come and he's going to have to leave it all behind. So he's kind of there to say goodbye to his gran. But the... The town he comes back to isn't exactly the town he left. There is this utterly obnoxious priest who's taken over the the local church and acts like he he knows Ollie when he doesn't. There's this Nan's old neighbour. There's this weird lady who is a bit of a hippie and is trying to insinuate that his Nan was a witch. And then there's this guy who looks weirdly familiar and whose voice gives him chills and then Ollie starts having bits of memories and he's all connected with this childhood friend that he knew and so he gradually puts the pieces together discovers that his nan was a witch and that he's inherited her power and that there are forces on the Clin peninsula trying very hard to drive him away but if he can defeat them he can get rid of the longing and possibly rescue his prince. The series is now um, a four book series. It's kind of obvious that he finds his prince, but. <laughs> Gotta get that yeah. happily ever after in there. The fifth book in the Deep Magic series was intended to be my nano project this year. As of today, I have yet to start, but I'm still hopeful I can make it happen. <laughs> Now, we're headed into the holidays. Obviously, we've talked about the Christmas party, but you've got yeah. three other books in the For the Love of Christmas. These look so adorable. The covers, I absolutely adore. They're so cute, aren't they? What is this series? Because they're so cute. Well, I ha- I'm going to be naughty and tell you the sort of behind the scenes story first, but I just got in Thorns and Fangs accepted by Nine Star and I was checking out their website and I looked at their submissions and they had a call out for holiday submissions and the call for seasonal stories, it was for a romance, it was 12,000 words to 30,000 words and you had to provide a synopsis. But for erotica, it was up to 5,000 words and you didn't have to give a synopsis. So I was like, erotica, okay, I'm sure I can do that. And the problem is that I have a pretty humorous writing style, or occasionally I do. And so I came up with the premise for the story 
but it was funny. And humor and erotica do not mix because it's hard to like write sexy and then throwing in a joke, it kind of kills the tension entirely. So what you've got instead of this really random story, I've been told it's really funny, but it's, yeah, it's not sexy, I don't think. <laughs> or maybe it is, but it's just, it's this really random mix of genres. But the premise is it's based on a real sweater I owned. I looked, I was in a mall in Japan and I saw the sweater and I was like, oh my gosh, everyone come and look at this. It's so ugly. And everyone's like, yeah, it's an ugly sweater. And I was like, oh, it's, but look how ugly it is. It was, it was a Union Jack design, but instead of being blue, red and white, it was like navy and tan and cream. So it was just this really weird combination of colors. And then they just added random extra buttons on it. Like the buttons didn't match and they were like, you know, fake buttons that didn't actually connect to anything. And I went home and the next day I was still thinking about the sweater and I'm like, no one is going to appreciate that sweater except for me. I must buy it. So I went out and I bought this hideous sweater and I still have it and I love it to pieces. But so yeah, the premise of the ugliest sweater is that there's this guy, Dan, who has this sweater and he loves it, but it's awful. And it's so awful that his two previous boyfriends have dumped him because they refuse to be seen with someone who's willing to go out in public in the sweater and he wears it for boyfriend number three who immediately dumps him and so Dan is in Starbucks sort of consoling himself with a gingerbread latte after the end of relationship number three and he meets this guy who is absolutely infatuated with his sweater and they have a sexy moment in the Starbucks bathroom. The guy takes off and Dan figures he's just like so embarrassed to have had an encounter with a guy wearing the world's ugliest Christmas sweater until he gets into work the next day and a local radio station is launching a hunt for the guy in the ugly sweater so they can set him up with Jake Boss, like superstar DJ. And... Dan, who works in a gym, is sort of catapulted into the world of radio stardom, which, you know, is not quite celebrity level, but getting there. And so they're going to like all these amazing gigs and stuff. And he's kind of, Jake hangs out with celebrities on a regular basis and he's incredibly cool. And Dan is like, what am I doing here? Is this like a rating stunt? Like, We've got nothing in common except for my sweater. Is, is this enough to build a relationship on? As it turns out, Jake has a couple of secrets of his own, but I do not want to spoil the entire story for people, no. so I'll just leave it there. More fun Christmas reading for, for yep. folks this season. You mentioned a little bit that before you started writing novels as a profession, you were doing fanfic and things like that. What did get you started with writing? I think I wanted to be a writer as far back as when I was in primary school, which is elementary school. But I fell victim to the advice that somebody's told me, oh, you know, 
you can't be a writer until you have life experience. And they kind I took that to mean you can't be a writer until you've done something meaningful or you have suffered a lot. And I have had an amazingly gentle life experience. I've been incredibly lucky. I've done some amazingly cool things, but I have not had a lot of hardship. So for my, especially in my, you know, early 20s and stuff. So I actually started writing fanfic when I was 13 and I was getting really annoyed that the characters in the books that I was reading were not doing what I wanted them to do. <laughs> and I kind of carried on when I was writing fan fiction. I didn't know what fanfic was. We were living in the Solomon Islands at that time and this was pre-internet. So it was literally just me and a computer. And when that computer died, my stories were lost, which is, oh, no. no, it's actually probably better that way. I'm sure they were incredibly embarrassing. But when I was 15, 16-ish, we moved back to New Zealand and I joined an ElfQuest zine in the States. And we used to get mailed out like a physical newsletter with our stories and art in it. And that was amazing. And then I went to university and in the lobby of our university hall of residence, there were two computers. And on one of those computers, I discovered fanfiction.net for the first time and the rest was history. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm sad for your, I'm sad for your older stories though. Cause sometimes it's just nice to look back at those and go, wow, I wrote that thing. <laughs> it's, it's good though, because I've got stories on live journal and archive of our own and I go back periodically and I start reading them and I get to the end and I'm like, ah, you know, how dare this author not finish this story? Like, where's the rest of it? And then I'm like, oh, damn, it's me. I did that. <laughs> yeah. What are some books you've read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? I recently read, oh, I think, The Magpie Lord, and I think that's K.J. Charles, and that just, it was so much fun. It was exactly what I needed. It had been sitting on my Kindle for, like, years, and I kept on thinking, I'm going to read this, and I know I'm going to love it, but for whatever reason, I just didn't read it and then yeah I'm so glad I did not read it earlier because it was exactly the book I needed it's just so it's pure fun and another book that I haven't read yet but I am really excited about Jamie Sand's newest book I think it's Overdues and Occultism I got that on pre-order and it just arrived yesterday so I'm super excited to eventually read that Tell us what's coming in 2021. I imagine there's some more Red by Candlelight going on there, given our conversation so far. Yeah, it will probably be the series that never ends, which I'm perfectly fine with. I'm really enjoying it. But I'd like to tie up the Deep Magic series. It's kind of been sitting there unfinished for a really long time. And so I'd really like to bring that to a close because I've got another very similar series that I'd like to write. And this is kind of testament to how bad I am at writing in a single genre. I planned this as a cozy mystery. One of the elements of cozy mystery, you do not have explicit violence. The murders are very much off screen. 
And also another trademark of Cozy Mystery is that the love interest is like, it's a long build, slow burn relationship and that builds up over many, many books before there's any kind of payoff. My amateur detective is a siren who has just been minding his own business sulking in a cave for the last hundred years. It's set in New Zealand in Banks Peninsula, which is where my family have lived for six generations. So I'm actually really looking forward to exploring it in um, book form. But yeah, so Ishmael, the siren, he's just minding his own business, having a massive hundred-year-old sulk. And then somebody dumps a dead body in his cave. And he's like, what am I going to do with this? Like, if I leave it here, it's going to attract sharks. But I don't really want to move. I've been here a hundred years. Okay, I'm going to get rid of it. Because once you get sharks, like, they keep coming back. They're just, ugh, sharks are the worst. So he helpfully dumps his dead body on a bay so that someone will find it and it can be someone else's problem. But having left his cave and, like, felt the fresh air and heard the bird song, he's like, he starts feeling restless and he hears boats and stuff. And so he goes back to investigate he ends up getting caught by a witch who like bundles him up takes him to the local police station and is like here's your murderer and Ishmael is like what and the police are like we don't think so (laughs) and while the witch is arguing with the police another victim is murdered so Ishmael is off the hook And the witch stole Ishmael's voice. So Ishmael is like, give me my voice back so I can murder you. And the witch is like, obviously, I'm not going to do that. And the witch has now lost all credibility because they are in town setting themselves up as a psychic. And now they've made this murder prediction that's just been completely, yeah. Oh, this sounds crazy fun. (laughs) It's great, but the problem is that Ishmael is absolutely, you never choose a siren to be a character in your cozy mystery, because I planned it so that Ishmael and Artemis, the witch, would have the long, um, slow burn relationship, but Ishmael has found a... I apologize for your iTunes rating. There's no other term. He's found a fuck buddy that's going really amazingly well, but he's starting to have feelings for Kyle. And then he, halfway through the book, Ishmael in the cozy mystery murders a police officer. Mm-mm. No, that's that's not what you do in a cozy mystery. And then he is now having unresolved sexual tension with a different police officer. So he's instead of having one low-key love interest, he's got three. And we've got non-screen murder. And mm. it's just like, I wanted a cozy mystery. I mean, it's very entertaining, but I'm like, this wasn't what I signed up for. <laughs> This is this is a hallmark of my writing career. I sit down to write one thing and I end up with something completely different. So how can people keep up with you online to know more about Red by Candlelight, where deep magic goes, how this cozy mystery finally gets to come to market and everything else? 
the best way to keep up with me is through my author newsletter. If you head over to my website, www.jilliansinkevin.com, you can sign up there. Otherwise, I've just recently started a Facebook group, St. Kevin Saints. So that's actually a lot of fun. A friend of mine keeps sharing Count von Count memes, which was completely <laughs> unexpected, but so much fun. Excellent. Well, we'll put links to all of that, let people know how to find you, plus all the books we've talked about in the show notes. Jillian, thank you so much for coming and telling us all about your writing. It has been an absolute pleasure. It's just been so fun getting to talk to you. This episode's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And remember, the show notes page also has links to everything that we talked about in this episode. And thanks again to Jillian for talking to us. Really such a delight to hear about the wildly different genres that she writes in and i can't wait to see how she sorts everything out with that cozy mystery that is rapidly becoming not a cozy mystery so <laughs> looking forward to seeing about that in 2021 all right everyone i think that's going to do it for now coming up next in episode 272 we've got one last listener favorite episode to round out the year celebrating our fifth anniversary but we're going to be a little bit coy you're going to have to come back next week and find out who it is yeah, you know us. We like to be coy sometimes. We've really enjoyed rolling these out to you guys. You all got to vote for them, and then we get to select them and slot them in. And I'm really excited about what we have set up for this one to kick off December. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, please stay strong, be safe, and above all else, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big A Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. If you want to find more shows you'll love, check out frolic.media slash podcasts. Our original theme music is composed by Daryl Banner. Thank you.